Welcome to Aging in Place Strategies and Answers with Linda Prio. Will it be possible to remain in my home as I age? Do I feel safe in my home? How do I figure out how much support I will need when my health needs start to change? What if I decide to move into a community instead? Which community will meet my needs now and in the future? Who will play a role in helping me with decision-making? Do you ask yourself these same questions? Aging in Place Strategies and Answers can help you gain practical knowledge that will help you create your own Aging in Place Roadmap. If you are already a care partner, a power of attorney, or in crisis mode with your Aging in Place strategy, you will learn what you need to know that you don't know. For over 20 years, I have been marketing Aging in Place services to clients and educating families and healthcare professionals in how to put aging in place strategies into place. When you utilize aging in place, you are allowed to choose where you want to live and make those decisions so that you can retain your quality of life. Welcome back to Aging in Place, Strategies and Answers. Today, we are going to continue in part two of what we were talking about last week, which was the fact that healthcare has been on the move away from a medical care model to a patient-centered care model. But in my opinion, and perhaps even yours now that you listen to my long list of questions that I asked, that you are also of the opinion that we aren't there yet. In today's podcast, we're going to be looking in greater detail about what a patient-centered care model should include and look at a typical doctor's office visit and then evaluate where we are. A patient-centered care model involves the patient in the decision-making. A patient-centered care model treats the patient with dignity and respect. A patient-centered care model is sensitive to the patient's cultural values and their own unique health goals. For a patient-centered care model to be successful, proper care coordination will allow the patient to express their feelings, their fears, and their anxieties, and then empower them rather than making them feel that they aren't actually in the driver's seat. Too often in my experience, the role of a social worker who is excellent at these things has been overlooked and undervalued. As I mentioned in last week's podcast, informed consent is very much a part of the patient-centered care model. Patients want to be advised on their condition 
their prognosis and what they need to watch for so they will know when to follow up with their physician and they want to know what is normal and what is abnormal and then how they can regain quality of life despite their diagnosis or their symptoms. In a patient-centered care model, patients need to be supported emotionally and they need to understand how this health situation will affect their ability to remain independent, remain employed, and how it will affect their family and potentially their finances. In this kind of model, during the hospital stay, a patient-centered care model will help the individual patient manage pain. They will provide assistance with activities of daily living, such as toileting, walking, showering, brushing their teeth, and washing their face. Hospitals should be kept safe and quiet and promote healing. In a patient-centered care model, patients should always know who is talking to them, and they should have the ability to have an advocate available to help with hearing and relaying vital information or helping the patient hear vital information. A patient-centered care model will include easy-to-follow discharge orders with clear instructions regarding prescriptions, follow-up appointments, what to expect when you arrive home, and what to expect in the next few days after you've been home, and what to do if something happens, or what to look for. Can we all come to the agreement that we just aren't there yet? The COVID pandemic dealt an even larger blow to healthcare because it was already short-staffed. And now we have burnout and compassion fatigue. Medicare was responsible for studying the average doctor visit and what to pay the physician for his time. And they actually shortened the average doctor visit to be 15 minutes. In turn, insurance plans adopted that same visit time. Plus, they determined how often you can see a doctor and made decisions on what doctors would be included in their network. The patient doesn't know that they only have 15 minutes with their physician. Instead, the patient approaches their appointment time in this way. Let me see. It has taken me two or more weeks to get an appointment with my physician. I've had to ask off work and make up the time or come in early or stay late. Plus, I've had to commute probably at least a minimum of 20 to 40 minutes. And now I'm stuck in this office waiting to see the physician. My next thought is I'm hoping that he is not running behind because I really need his time and so I hope he doesn't try to cut my time short with him. The doctor enters the room after picking up the chart 
and looks at the last note from the last visit. He enters the room thinking, oh my goodness, I'm already behind schedule. Hopefully I can make up some time during this visit. Before the visit even begins, there is tension for the patient and for the physician. As I have mentioned in previous podcasts, my mother lived to 100 years of age. I was her daughter, I was her advocate, and I was her caregiver, and I looked after her health very carefully. So I'm going to give you an example from my playbook. I met my mother and her caregiver at the doctor's office. Her physician came into the exam room, asked my mother a quick question, and then moved on to the task for that appointment. I decided to ask the physician a question about a routine medication that she had been taking, and I wanted his thoughts on the value of continuing that medication based on her age and based on the risks. The physician took one look at me and said, you are stressing me out. If that was my doctor, that would have been my last visit. But my mother loved her doctor, who was an excellent caring physician. But any response like that is not okay and is certainly not representative of a patient-centered care model. In an article published by KFF Health News, medical schools drill their students in the art of taking a careful medical history, but studies have found that doctors often fall short in the listening department. In fact, it turns out that they have a bad habit of interrupting. From a 1999 study of 29 family physician practices, the researchers found that doctors let patients speak for only 23 seconds before redirecting them. In fact, only one in four patients actually got to finish their statement. A University of South Carolina study in 2001 found primary care patients were interrupted after 12 seconds, if not by the health care provider, then by a beeper or a knock on the door. In a patient-centered care model, as in the illustration I gave earlier, always allows a patient to express their fears, their concerns, their anxieties, and ask questions. Within the first six weeks on my new job in marketing, in healthcare, I asked a coworker, a nurse, why isn't anyone communicating with one another? After all, as an advocate for my father, I had already seen how poor communication and lack of empathy caused problems for the patient and for their support system. I have plenty of examples that I could give you, and I think we all learn by examples, and you probably have a few that you could share with me. But this example came to mind rather quickly, and I think it illustrates the point perfectly. 
One of our clients was a professor and a physician. In fact, they were a family of physicians and his wife was a nurse. The doctor became a client of ours when his diagnosis started becoming problematic and had led to recent hospitalizations. He admitted to the hospital, readmitted to the hospital, and been told that this could be his new normal. After discussing potential care scenarios, it was decided to bring the doctor home and his family and his wife would try to provide the care that was needed. Our company was called in after 24 hours at home. The kind of care that he needed was above his wife's ability due to his increased weakness and her advanced age. When I met with the family to finalize the hours, the care plan, and review the expectations, the son, who was a physician, looked at me and said, I have never been on this side of the table before. I had no idea what my patients and their families were experiencing after I discharged them from the hospital. I didn't realize what it takes to bring home a sick family member and try to figure it out on your own. And we are doctors. You know that that was a special moment for me. But I nodded my head and responded that he was going to be an even better physician to his patients after this personal experience. We may not be there yet. We may not have a perfect patient-centered care model where everybody is doing things correctly, but I definitely think we are moving in the right direction. Almost all states have approved the C-A-R-E or CARE Act, which is intended to provide family caregivers of hospitalized patients the knowledge and the skills needed for safe and efficient transitions. This act has broken important ground for family caregivers who assist with transitions in patient care. Patients are to be advised of their opportunity to identify a family caregiver. The caregiver's name and contact info are then entered into the health record with the patient's permission. Family caregivers are to be given as much notice as possible about discharge timing and providing a consultation about the discharge plan. During the consultation, their role in the discharge plan will be discussed and they will be instructed on medical or nursing tasks that they will need to handle at home. Professionals will provide knowledge and education and offer additional resources that could help them support themselves as a caregiver and their loved one. This act is vitally important because the number of caregivers providing complex tasks or medical care in the home has increased. 
Here's another illustration from my own experience. Before my mother was discharged from the hospital, I was brought in to discuss the date of discharge and what my role would be as a family caregiver. And I was told that I was going to be responsible for giving my mother an injection. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you before, but I am not a nurse. And I did not feel that I had the skill set to give injections. My thoughts were, what if I didn't do it right? Was I prepared to handle the outcome if I did something wrong? Remember also that I was not a newbie to healthcare. I was a professional and I had some knowledge and experience. So I asked about medical home health and whether that would cover the injections that my mother needed. The nurse informed me that it wasn't covered and I had to do it. I had seen our nurses train others in how to give insulin and how they were allowed to do a test into an orange. And when I asked my nurse friends why an orange, they said, well, it's very similar to giving it into flesh. So I asked the nurse in front of me, how do I get practice? And the nurse said, no practice for you. She said, you don't have to worry. The syringe is spring-loaded and pre-filled. Easy peasy. All I had to do was get the prescription filled, which was very expensive. And then they taught me where to inject it. Now, it was easy peasy for her because she was a nurse. It was not easy peasy for me because I am not a nurse. There was no practicing because of the expense of the medication. And you should have seen my mother's face as I approached her with a syringe and gave her the injection. As a family caregiver, I am very capable and I am very willing to do many tasks, but injections are not on that list. As a result of the CARE Act, which is moving us in the direction of a patient-centered care model, it is true that more people are providing complex medical tasks in the home, and those numbers will only increase as more care is delivered in the home. My advice is to hire the care that you need so that you can stay there in the long run for your loved one. Request resources that can help you and ask for professional education before you leave the doctor's office or the hospital. Several months ago, there was a request made for a nurse who could help the patient and her husband set up her new glucometer on their cell phone so that the physician could get up-to-date information and be able to help his patient appropriately. Unfortunately, the patient had been given the new glucometer and all the other pieces that were a part of making this uh, device work, but without that smartphone and without the equipment 
they weren't just going to be able to get the kind of information that they needed. This was a waste of time, money, and effort, and not a perfect picture of patient-centered care. In the beginning of podcast number one, I asked you several questions that would help you evaluate whether or not your healthcare team was moving in the direction of patient-centered care. So I want to repeat some of those questions for you now. Do you feel that your health team takes the time to listen to you and to learn your concerns? Do you feel that you're given enough information about your condition or diagnosis to understand what is going on? Does your team explain what medications are being prescribed, what they're for, what to look for, and how long to take them? If medical tests have been ordered as a patient, do you understand the reason for the test? Do you know what to expect during the test? And who will be communicating with you after the test? And what that time frame will be that you will receive the results? If you had a hospital stay, do you know who you talk to in the hospital? Do you know what their role was in your health care? Did you or your support system have access to the hospitalist, the care manager, or physical therapist so that you could learn more about your present status and potentially next steps? As a patient, were your physical care needs met while you were at the hospital or during a rehab stay when you needed extra care assistance? Was the discharge process explained to you or your support system? Did you understand the post-hospital or rehab stay follow-up process with your primary care physician or specialist? And were you informed of what your insurance would pay or not pay and what your financial obligations would be. Remember, the one thing that I wanted you to keep in your mind is that you are not to leave your common sense at the front door and that no one is more concerned about your health care than you are. So ask questions, but be kind but make sure that you feel that you're getting the information that you need to make an educated decision. Here is this week's caregiver fact and tip. Studies show that half of the nation's 40 million family caregivers are undertaking complicated medical nursing tasks for their family members and friends including giving injections, preparing special diets, managing tube feedings, and handling medical equipment like ventilators and suctioning machines. Please consult professionals for education and instruction before leaving the hospital or rehab center and do not perform skilled medical care or tasks on someone you don't know. Leave that to the professionals who carry professional and personal liability insurance. Before I leave today, 
I want to say thank you to the 40 million family caregivers who are taking care of loved ones at home. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for joining me today. Please remember that this podcast is intended as guidance and not advice. Share this podcast with friends and family who are currently in crisis mode or with people who would like to start developing their own roadmap for aging in place. Listeners, if you would like a deeper dive into a topic discussed during a podcast, please subscribe to Aging in Place Strategies and Answers where you will be able to access premium content. Or if you would like to suggest a topic for this podcast, please contact me at lynda.agingstrategies at gmail.com. As always, I value the time you spend with me.